Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 27, 2 Samuel chapters 17 and 18. Well, we began uh, 2 Samuel chapter 17 last week as Absalom and his forces were now running the government of Israel from Jerusalem. And he was even occupying the royal palace that was named after his father in the city of David. Now Absalom's partner in rebellion, Bathsheba's grandfather, Akitophel, remained Absalom's closest advisor. And since the first stage of the coup had been accomplished and King David and his large contingent of loyal followers had fled to somewhere between Jerusalem and the Jordan River, Absalom sought Akitophel's counsel on what to do next. And at the end of chapter 16, his advice was for Absalom to have sex with all of the ten concubines from David's harem that he had left behind to tend to the royal palace and to do so literally on the rooftop of the palace. And Akitophel's purpose in this, this rather barbaric act was for Absalom to so publicly insult and marginalize his father that those who sided with Absalom knew that not the slightest prospect of reconciliation between David and his rebellious son existed any longer. Thus they wouldn't have to worry that Absalom might get cold feet about his rebellion. Seek forgiveness and stand aside for David to return to power because in that event it would mean their execution. No king could forgive, not even his own son, for such a blatant act. Well, after Absalom committed this offense, Akitophel knew that the decisive moment had arrived. David must be done away with. So he went to Absalom with a plan to take 12,000 soldiers with him and in a lightning-fast strike, catch David and his contingent by surprise and then kill the former king of Israel. Now there's little doubt that such a brilliant plan would have worked. But a higher power than even the wisdom of this renowned counselor was guiding these events unseen. And so inexplicably, Absalom decides to get a second opinion from none less than the friend of David, Hushai. It's illogical. I mean, Avshalom knew full well that Hushai was deeply dedicated to David, and yet, in verse 5, Avshalom calls for Hushai, tells him exactly what Akitophel has recommended, and wonders what Hushai thinks would be the best course of action. Hushai repudiates Akitophel's plan. Now, one might reasonably ask why Absalom would even see the need to validate Akitophel's counsel, considering the high regard his vice was given, that 
Achitophel, being the architect of the rebellion, was obviously all in for Absalom, and that Hushai ought to have been viewed with some suspicion, considering his long-time close relationship with David. Not to mention the fact that even if Absalom rejected Hushai's advice and stuck with Achitophel's plan, Hushai now knew everything that was going on. I think the earthly reason that Absalom sought out Hushai is rather transparent. Achitophel was trying to give himself a promotion, and Absalom knew it. See, Achitophel not only wanted to devise the plan to find David and kill him, he wanted to handpick the troops and be the one who would lead them into battle. Achitophel had been a counselor to the leader, not the leader, and certainly not a military general. If he were allowed to personally form and lead an army into battle and succeed, he would have been viewed by the public as the de facto general of the Israelite army and therefore second in command over all Israel. And as we're going to see shortly, Absalom had already selected his top general. And he must have also had no intention on giving the brilliant and apparently ambitious Akitophel such a platform for power. Well, therefore Absalom wanted to hear from Hushai and, and Hushai gave him a different plan, one that minimized Akitophel's participation and instead put Absalom into public view. But it was also a plan that would likely fail, even though it appealed to Absalom's inflated view of himself. Hushai went so far as to boldly say that Akitophel's advice on this matter was bad advice. Rather, says Hushai, Absalom needs to remember that his father David is powerful. He's a fierce warrior. Itai and his men are trained and hardened fighters. They're not going to panic at the arrival of Akitophel's 12,000-man army. They're not going to throw down their weapons and run. Rather, there's going to be a bloody battle. He says, as they fight like a mother cub that has lost her cubs to the hunter. And the outcome will be that as soon as some of Akitophel's forces are killed, they're going to lose courage and thus lose the battle. And even though Akitophel is leading them, this is the decisive battle. For, will be forever viewed as between Absalom's army and David. And if so, if Absalom's army is defeated, the people of Israel are going to see David is still strong and able to rule, and Absalom will lose support. What a disaster that would be. Therefore, Hushai says, the better plan is to assemble a much larger force Men taken from Dan, that's in the northernmost regions of, of Israel, and then also from in the tribes all the way in between, all the way down south to Beersheba in Judah. The army will be so large and formidable that should David retreat and try to, try to hide inside a walled city, 
Word will be sent ahead that any fortress city who harbors him will be destroyed down to the last stone and the rubble dragged into a riverbed. Now the idea is that the city will never get rebuilt since rubble at the side of the old city is what was always used to rebuild the new one. Hushai further counsels that Absalom should himself lead this irresistible force that is certain to be victorious, and that way Absalom and not Akitophel will be hailed as the victor. Besides, that's what real kings do. Well, the narcissistic and unstable Absalom, of course, loves Hushai's plan. And so he goes to the other leaders of the rebellion and tells them that in this rare case, the nearly infallible Akitophel's advice is inferior to Hushai's. Hushai's plans better, should be acted upon. They all agree. Well, the cunning behind Hushai's plan is that while Akitophel could put together a 12,000 man hand-picked force of experienced soldiers and do it immediately, it would take weeks at best to cobble together a large militia of farmers and herders and craftsmen from one end of the Israel one end of Israel to the other. The resultant army would be inexperienced and be an undisciplined one. And David would have gained sufficient time to flee somewhere to his advantage to prepare a defense. Well, let's reread the last half of chapter 17 now to get our bearings. 2 Samuel chapter 17, we'll start reading at verse 15. That is page 352 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Then Hushai said to Sadok and Evitar the Kohanim, the priests, Akitophel gave such and such advice to Avshalom and the leaders of Israel, but I advised so and so. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, don't stay tonight in the desert plains, but whatever it takes, move on from there. Otherwise the king and the people with him will be engulfed. Jonathan and uh, Ahimaaz were staying at Ein Rogel. And a female servant was to go and tell them, and they were in turn uh, to go and tell King David, for it would not do to have them seen entering the city. But a boy saw them and, saw, and told Avshalom. So both of them took off quickly and came to the house of a man in Bakurim who had a cistern in his courtyard, and they went down into it. His wife spread a covering over the cistern's opening and scattered drying grain on it so that nothing showed. Avshalom's servants came to the woman at the house and asked, where are Ahimaaz and Yohanatan? And the woman answered them, Oh, they've crossed the stream. And after searching and not finding them, they returned to Jerusalem. And after they had left, the two climbed out of the cistern and went and told King David, Get up and cross the river, because Akitophel has given such and such advice against you. David and all the people with him got up and crossed the Jordan, and by dawn, every one of them had crossed the Jordan. And when Akitophel saw that his advice was not being followed, he saddled his donkey, he set out, and he went home to his own city. And after setting his house in order, he hanged himself. He died, and he was buried in his father's tomb. David had reached Mahanaim by the time Avshalom and all the men of Israel crossed the Yarden. Avshalom had put Amasa in charge of the army in place of Yoav. 
Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Yitra the Israeli, who had had sexual relations with Abigail, the daughter of Nachash, Seruah's sister and Joab's mother. Israel and Avshalom pitched camp in the land of Gilead. And after David had arrived in Machanaim, Shovi the son of Nachash from Rabbah of the people of Ammon, Machir the son of Amiel from Lodavar, and Barzillai the Giladi from Roglim brought beds and basins, clay pots, wheat, barley, flour, roasted grain, beans, lentils, roasted millet, honey, curdled milk, sheep and cheese made of cow's milk for David and for the people with him to eat because they said these people are hungry and tired and thirsty from the desert. Now, as further proof that it is Yehovah who is invisibly directing these events, the two high priests of Israel, Sadok and Evyatar, who David ordered to remain in Jerusalem to serve the people and to act as his informers, are utilized to help confound Absalom's intentions. And Hushai tells them to quickly get word to David to move on from wherever it is he's camped. And he informs the high priests not only of the plan he had planted in Absalom's mind, but also of Akitophel's plan. After all, there was no way to know what Absalom was going to actually decide to do. The high priests employed the services of a woman servant to go and tell their sons, Yohanatan and Ahimaaz, who were staying just outside the city walls, by the way, on the edge of the Mount of Olives, right, at a place called Ein Rogel. They were to go find David and then warn him. Well, they left immediately, but they noticed they had been discovered by a boy who had been instructed by Absalom to watch for just such a thing. So they sought the help of a woman who lived in Bahrain. She had a water cistern on her property, apparently empty at the time. So hid the two men in it as Absalom's men quickly fanned out to try and find them. Well, she cleverly spread out a heavy cloth, a cloth covering over the cistern, and on top of it spread grain as if drying. Right, in order to, to disguise the opening and knowing that Jonathan and Ahimaaz had headed off in that direction, the soldiers questioned the woman as to their whereabouts and she lied to them. She told them that they had gone over the water, not over the river. Okay. Absalom's men looked around and not finding them, they left. This reminds us a little bit of um, Rahab at Jericho when she hid Joshua's advanced scouts and then lied to the Jericho government authorities about it. You know, I'm often asked about matters like this in the Bible because we have well-known stories, several, whereby friends of God tell out-and-out lies to protect God's people and it's typically held up in the scriptures as a good deed. Yet we all know that one of the Ten Commandments prohibits lying. 
So, does telling a lie for what seems like a good cause mean that that lie becomes as truth? And thus there is no sin in it. And so we're relieved of the spiritual consequences. I think this is a conundrum that all believers face on a a rather regular basis. So I I want to spend just a few moments with it. And the rabbis have a wonderful and I think most appropriate device for dealing with this challenge called Kal Vomer. It, It means light and heavy. And the mental picture we ought to get is of a of a balance scales reacting to a, a heavier weight on one side as compared to the other. Now I've spoken on this before in our study of Torah, but I want to remind you that the principle is that not all sin is equal. Unlike the more typical Christian doctrine that often teaches that a sin is a sin is a sin. That pilfering a candy bar is no different in God's eyes than armed robbery. Because all sin is the same. Well, that doctrine is neither the Hebrew nor the biblical view. The Torah explicitly teaches that there are lesser and greater sins. There are even things called unforgivable sins that are often in the Old Testament at least called high-handed sins. And then in the New Testament, these high-handed sins are labeled as the sins of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The Levitical sacrificial system deals with this by prescribing sacrificial offerings of either lesser or greater cost depending on the seriousness of the offense. And for the most serious of offenses, no atonement is available. So no sacrifice will suffice. Further, there are things that God has created that are more or less important in God's hierarchy of value. For instance, humans and animals are both valuable and important, but human life outweighs animal life. And near the top of God's list of valuable things is life, innocent life. Thus, wherever possible, innocent human life is to be preserved even if the circumstances aren't ideal. And we're not going to be dealing with criminally guilty human life in this little detour today. The principle of Carl Vomer, therefore, says that we will encounter circumstances when one must choose between sins. So we should choose to intentionally commit the lesser sin in order to avoid the greater one. Now I've given the humorous, at least it's humorous to men, stereotypical example of the overweight wife who asks her husband if she looks fat in her new dress. To which the answer must always be no. Alright, if family harmony is to be kept anyway. I've also given the more sobering example of the many good people in Germany in World War II who hid Jews from being murdered by the Nazis. All the while 
lying to their government authorities that they didn't know the whereabouts of these missing Jews. In the first case I gave you, the lie was an act of chesed, loving kindness, to save the feelings and self-esteem of a beloved wife. And in the second case, the lie was literally to preserve innocent human life. But does the lie become as truth in God's eyes because of its noble purpose? No, it doesn't. Nothing in Scripture implies such a thing. The lie remains a lie. And therefore it remains a sin. But consider the reverse. The husband well knows on the one hand that his wife does look fat in that dress. And he also knows that although his wife's feelings and sense of worth will be harmed by a frank answer, he determines he has no choice but to tell the truth. Or, My goodness, he'd be guilty of the sin of lying. What if a German knows the whereabouts of innocent Jews in hiding because he's hiding them? And he tells the authorities where they are merely because they ask. Because as a Christian, well, he understands that it's a sin to lie as well as a sin to disobey your human government. That's explained in the New Testament. See, the principle of Karl Vomer says that if we were to take this approach, we would be choosing to commit a greater sin avoiding the lesser sin. And the greater sin is that we're more concerned with the consequences of our own trespass against God than in upholding the most fundamental, foundational tenet of all true biblical religion, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves and to put their well-being above our own. On God's balance scales, saving innocent life carries more weight than strict adherence of the Torah prohibition against lying to our fellow man. Loving our wives, showing them chesed, carries more weight than the strict adherence to the Torah prohibition against lying. The woman in Bahrim who hid the high priest's sons who were in the process of warning David in order to save God's anointed one from death at the hands of his evil son Absalom, she told a lie. She defied her government authorities. But in the so doing, she also preserved innocent life. She chose to stand with God's anointed above a humanly contrived government. You know, this woman only had two choices before her. Tell the soldiers the truth or lie to them. She did the right thing for the right reason, even though in doing so she knowingly committed the lesser sin to avoid the greater. See, this is but the condition that mankind finds ourselves in, whether believer or pagan. And it's going to be so 
until Messiah returns. And he rids the world of evil and so mankind's no longer faced with such a sad choice. And thank God, this Messiah, Yeshua, has paid the price for both our lesser and greater sins until that future time arrives. And we have a God who is not mechanically legalistic, but is merciful. And He looks at the Spirit underlying all of His commandments. He looks at the heart of His worshipers who seek to follow Him in obedience. Well, sometime after the soldiers left and the coast was clear, the woman helped Yohanatan and Ahimaaz out of the cistern, and they went and found David and gave him the message. And notice that verse 21 makes it clear that part of the message that David must immediately act upon is what Ahitophel told Absalom. Because if Absalom chose to carry out Hushai's plan instead, there was no particular hurry. As quite some time would pass before the much larger army that Hushai suggested could be assembled, which was Hushai's intent all along. Well, David was at this time on the west bank of the Jordan River. But now he'll take his followers and cross over unto the Transjordan, taking no chances. The entire group makes their move overnight. Well, back in Jerusalem, it became clear to Akitophel that Absalom was not going to follow his advice in pursuing David. And he instinctively knew that the entire revolution would now collapse in failure. As Bathsheba's grandfather, Akitophel was a very bitter, vindictive man who had dedicated the remainder of his days to ruining David for defiling his lovely granddaughter and thus bringing great dishonor and shame upon the family. You know, failed revolutions don't end well for those who lead them. Akitophel, as do many people in all eras, decided he wasn't going to give David the satisfaction of determining the time and means of his end. So he took control. He went back to his hometown, delivered his last will and testament, and then committed suicide by strangulation. Probably hanging, but that's merely a guess. Verse 24 tells us, without explanation, that David chose to use Mahanaim as his temporary capital and and headquarters. It's a little bit surprising, I think, that David would choose this particular place. And one must assume that it was at least partly because he could get to it rather rapidly from where they were currently hiding out. The thing is that Mahanaim was where Saul's surviving son, Ishbosheth, set up his capital. So there would have been a heavy Benjamite tribal influence. And many of the residents were undoubtedly still loyal to Saul's family, and, and they, they were none too pleased to host David. Nevertheless, this was a, a very well fortified walled city. It was also a Levitical city of refuge. Right? In, in some ways, appropriate for this situation, isn't it? 
I mean, where theoretically those within the city would by law be held safe from those who wanted to harm him. I mean, did David actually think that perhaps his son Avshalom would obey the Torah law and allow David and his followers to remain there and not attack the city because of its special religious status? Maybe. Machanaim had always been a special place for Israel because it was here at Machanaim that Jacob, upon returning from Mesopotamia to Canaan, had another encounter with angels just before he had his reunion with Esau. Well, verse 25 explains that it was a good thing that David made haste and planned for the worst because no sooner had he and his people arrived in Machanaim, Avshalom, leading his army, crossed the Jordan in hot pursuit. Apparently, Avshalom didn't follow the advice of either Akitophel or Hushai. He created kind of a hybrid plan of the two. He personally led the army, as advised by Hushai, but he also brought with him a smaller force that he could muster immediately, as advised by Akitophel. And the results seemed to indicate that the force was a composition of his own choosing and the troops he chose weren't particularly adept at war. Further, he put a fellow named Amasa in charge of the army. Now, who this Amasa is, is not entirely clear. Here it says, he is the son of a man named Yitra the Israelite. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, it says he is the son of Yeter the Ishmaelite. Now, while there's not full agreement on this matter, most Hebrew scholars say that his father was an Ishmaelite, an Arab. But his mother was Avigail, a Hebrew. Very likely, this was an illegitimate relationship. And so, legally, Amasa was an illegitimate cousin of Joab's. This might explain why it's logical that since Joab had cast his loyalty to David, his cousin Amasa would do the opposite and cast his loyalty to David's enemy. There would be a natural animosity and rivalry between these two cousins, especially as it pertained to power and position. Well, we're told that Israel and Avshalom pitched camp in the land of Gilead. Now, Israel, in this instance, is a very general term that meant Absalom's army that had recruits from all over the 12 tribes. It says that they had encamped in Gilead. And very likely, this is referring to an area around the city of Jabesh Gilead, somewhere up in here, all right, a little bit north of David's stronghold at Machanaim. And they would... That would, that would make a lot of sense because Jabesh Gilead was all, had always had close ties to the tribe of Benjamin. Associated themselves, they associated themselves to the northern tribal coalition and, and, and would have been among those tribes that had the least interest in being loyal to David, a Judahite. So they would have welcomed the enemy of David, even if that enemy was David's son. Now we're also told that three prominent men brought every manner of supplies to David and to his followers in Machanaim. Now, no doubt, these weren't the only three. 
But most Hebrew scholars see these three as, as kind of representative of certain groups or categories of people who remained loyal to King David, or at least made the bet that in the end, David would be the eventual winner in this epic struggle. Shovi came from Rabbah, the capital city of Ammon. He was actually a relative of David's, but represented the extreme border inhabitants of Israel, foreigners actually, who preferred David as an ally. Machir from Lodavar was a former loyalist to King Saul, but was now part of a group of Israelites who readily accepted King David. Barzillai was from the area of Gilead, and he represented the wealthy landowners of the region, who felt that their best interest lay with David continuing on as king. Well, the idea of this extensive description of men and supplies is to show that David was not without support nor despite his age and badly bruised reputation from all of his infamous deeds, mainly surrounding Bathsheba and all the fallout from that. All of the various clans and tribes of Israel weren't necessarily ready to accept Absalom as their inevitable king. And then along with these supplies came a significant number of volunteers to fight alongside David. Let's see how this comes out. Let's move into chapter 18. Chapter 18. David took a census of the people who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and of hundreds. And then David dispatched the people, a third of them under the command of Joab, a third under Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, and a third under Ittai, the Gittite. And the the king said to the people, I will also go out with you myself. But the people replied, don't go out. Because if we flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. So it is better now that you stay in the city and be ready if we need help. The king answered them, I will do whatever you think best. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king gave orders to Yoav, Abishai, and Ittai. For my sake, deal gently with young Absalom. All the people were listening when the king gave all the commanders this order concerning Absalom. So the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. And the people of Israel were defeated there by David's servants. There was a terrible slaughter that day, 20,000 men. For the battle there was spread all over the countryside. The forest devoured more people that day than did the sword. And Avshalom happened to meet some of David's servants. And Avshalom was riding his mule, and as the mule walked under the thick branches of a terebinth tree, his head got caught in the terebinth so that he was left hanging between earth and sky as the mule went on from underneath him. And someone saw it and told Joab, I saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth. And Joab asked the man who told him, Here now, you saw it. Why didn't you strike him to the ground then and there? I would have had to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt besides. 
And the man replied to Joab, Even if I were to get a thousand pieces of silver, I still wouldn't raise my hand against the son of the king. After all, while we were listening, the king ordered you, Abishai and Ittai, be careful that no one touches young Avshalom. Or if I had pretended that I didn't know, the king would have known otherwise anyway, and you wouldn't have interceded for me. And Joab said, I can't waste time arguing with you. He took three darts in his hand and rammed them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive, hanging from the terebinth. And then Yuav's ten young armor-bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. Joab sounded the shofar, and the people returned from pursuing Israel because Joab had held back the troops. They took Absalom and threw him into a big pit in the forest. They piled a big heap of stones over him. All Israel fled, each one to his tent. In his own lifetime, Avshalom had taken and raised for himself the pillar which stands in the king's valley because he said, I don't have a son to preserve the memory of my name. So he named the pillar after himself and it's called Avshalom's Monument to this day. Then Ahimaatz, the son of Sadok, said, Let me run now and bring good news to the king that Adonai has judged in his favor by releasing him from his enemies. And Joab said to him, No, you're not to be the one to bring the news today. You can convey news another day. But today you will not bring news because the king's son is dead. And then Joab said to the Ethiopian, Go tell the king what you saw. And the Ethiopian bowed to Joab and then ran off. But Ahimaaz, the son of Sadok, said to Joab, Come what may, please let me also run after the Ethiopian. And Yoav answered, Why do you want to run, my son? You won't receive any reward for bringing the news. I don't care. Whatever happens, I want to run. So he said to him, Run. And then Ahimaaz ran by the road through the desert flats and outran the Ethiopian. And David was sitting between the two gates. A watchman went up to the roof of the gate and onto the wall, raised his eyes and looked and saw there a man running by himself. The watchman cried out and told the king. The king said, if he's alone, he has good news to tell. And as he ran along and came close, the watchman saw another man running and called to the gatekeeper. There's another man running by himself. And the king said, well, he too must have good news. The watchman said, the first one runs like Ahimaaz, the son of Sodok, Sadok. And the king said, he's a good man. He comes with good news. And Ahimaaz called to the king, Shalom. And he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground and said, Blessed be Adonai, your God, who has handed over the men who rebelled against my lord, the king. The king answered, is everything all right with young Avshalom? And Ahimaaz answered, Well, when Yoav sent the king's servant and me, your servant, I saw a big commotion, but, but I didn't know what it was. And the king said, Go and stand over there. So he went and stood there. And there, uh, then up came the Ethiopian. And the Ethiopian said, there's good news for my lord the king, for Adonai has judged in your favor and rid you of all those who rebelled against you. And the king asked the Ethiopian, Is everything all right with young Avshalom? And the Ethiopian answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rebel against you in order to harm you be as that young man is. 
We need to pause, take kind of a broad view at this point. See, what began as a war of rebellion has just turned into a civil war. This was the fear that the now deceased Akitophel tried to impart to Absalom. It was one thing for a usurper to gain the backing of the right people and to kind of convince the general population to either help him or sit it out in his effort to gain the throne. See, this was a purely political battle fought mainly between two politicians. But it was quite another when a country divided itself into two factions. One side backing one king, the other side backing another, and they were willing to fight to see their man and their faction win because for them, this was more of a cause than it was about self-serving political ambitions. David, despite his flaws, was still popular enough to command the respect of many tribal princes and clans and of the top military leaders and of a goodly amount of trained soldiers. And since the Lord was not yet through with David, the outcome was inevitable. The meaning of David taking a census is to be taken in military terms. It was usual for a king or a military commander to take a census of his army immediately before a significant battle. Not so much to, to, uh, for him to determine the size of his force. He already had a pretty good idea about that. But to record names, to pair them with battlefield units that could then be specifically assigned to certain commanders. It was both a means of organization and a means to later determine how many casualties were sustained, how many troops became captives of the enemy. So Absalom had a sizable force, likely considerably larger than David's. But mostly, they were ill-trained and undisciplined and probably only served because they were politically forced into it. David's army were led by professionals, consisted of volunteers who by their own free will chose to risk their lives. And they had confidence since David was perhaps the most revered Israelite military leader since Joshua. Now using a standard Israeli military tactic, David divided his troops into three divisions led by Yoav, who had been David's commanding general for the past 30 years, then his brother and longtime commander, Abishai, and then Ittai the Gittite, possibly a former Philistine, who had been with David since the days he was on the run from King Saul. These were highly skilled generals, leading experienced, dedicated troops, but they were outnumbered by Absalom. So when David declared that he planned to personally lead them into battle, he was firmly rebuffed by the army. David was by now an old man, years removed from the battlefield. He was living on reputation. The reality is that he had been a passive, sedentary monarch for the last 20 years. 
Just as David knew his dear elderly friend and counselor Hushai would have valiantly followed David into the wilderness but also would have been mostly a burden so David refused to allow him to come along, the army commanders now felt that same way about David. They respected him. But the physical realities of aging catch up to everybody at some point. So they told him that he was just much too valuable to come with them. The risk of his death or capture was just too great. Besides, as they rightly pointed out, David remaining alive was the crucial issue. Because Absalom couldn't become the undisputed king until his father David was dead. As long as David lived, the matter remained unsettled. Killing even 10,000 of David's soldiers would have looked good on Absalom's resume, but it still left him short of the absolutely necessary goal, a deceased David. David accepted their verdict. He hailed them as they marched out the city gates of Mahanaim to war. But David... David had an ulterior motive for standing by the gates that almost any parent could understand. Yet that motive had no place in the mind or mouth of a man who still wanted to be God's anointed king over God's chosen people. David wanted every last soldier to know that he didn't want any harm to come to Absalom. He made it clear to his three commanders. He made it clear to all who were within earshot. Go gently with Absalom. You know, a divinely anointed leader who freely chooses to enter into service to God no longer has the luxury and comfort of putting his family above everything else. David had been putting his family above his duties to Jehovah for a very long time. And the outcome was disastrous. You know, it's long been a Christian saying that God comes first, family second. But my personal observation is that in practice, that order is almost always reversed. In fact, those Christian leaders who don't reverse it are often roundly criticized by the church in general for being so callous and uncaring towards their families and therefore behaving, in their view, in an ungodly manner. Our Savior has always warned that following Him will exact a cost. And it needs to be counted before making that commitment. And that cost doesn't come only upon the one who chooses it, but often it spills over upon his entire family. I think we'll end today with these couple of segments from Luke, the book of Luke. Don't turn to it, I'm just going to read it to you from Luke 14, 26-33. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life besides, he cannot be my Talmud, my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own execution stake and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Don't you sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough capital to complete it? If you don't, then when you've laid the foundation but you can't finish, all the onlookers start making fun of you. And they say, this is the man who began to build, but he couldn't finish. Or again, suppose one king is going out to wage war with another king. Doesn't he first sit down and consider whether he with his 10,000 troops has enough strength to meet the other one who's coming against him with 20,000? If he hasn't, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation to inquire about terms for peace. So every one of you who doesn't renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. And also in the book of Luke, our Messiah said this in Luke 9, 57-62. As they were traveling on the road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Yeshua answered him, You know, the foxes have holes. The birds flying about have nests, but the Son of Man has no home of His own. And to another He said, Follow Me. But the man replied, Sir, first let me go home and bury my father. And Yeshua said, Let the dead bury their dead. You, go, proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I'll follow you, sir, but first let me say goodbye to the people at home. And to him Yeshua said, no one puts his hand to the plow and keeps looking back is fit to serve the kingdom of God. Hard lesson.